Do you feel stressed, frustrated, angry, or anxious? Well, it might be because you have what God wants from you all wrong. Let's talk about what God really wants from you. Well, this is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am your host, Kyle Winkler, creator of the Shut Up Devil app, author of the upcoming book, Shut Up Devil. I am all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life, and I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience where I teach and pray, and sometimes we even have giveaways. So join us live sometime on Thursdays at 8 central at kylewinkler.org org slash live. Okay, we are in a series about the new you. We're discovering how what you believe about yourself makes all the difference. And whether you're confident or insecure, courageous or fearful, at peace or in chaos, whether you consistently battle or live in victory is related to how you think about you. That's why the devil, whose name in Greek means slanderer. That's why he works so hard to lie to you, to slander you. He doesn't want you to know who you are, all so that you keep striving to do something, to do better, to work harder, to make God happier. But as the new you, there's nothing more you have to do. I'm serious. The new you doesn't need to do anything. God isn't looking for work out of you. He isn't asking you to climb some ladder of position or focus on overcoming your every struggle. He's not asking you to do more giving or do more serving. Now, some of you might be mad at me right now for saying that. (laughs) Because aren't we saved unto good works? I mean, James 2.26 says that faith without works is dead. People love to quote that one back to me these days. Look at the church growth track of most modern churches. To most, the highest level of spiritual growth is serving in some capacity. Certainly, you and I could probably rattle off a bunch of Bible verses that say these kinds of things. And I'm sure some social media theologians will be happy to share them with me when I post this message later. But I contend that the highest revelation of the new you in Christ is not what you can do for God, but it's who you are to God. That's how Jesus spoke. He spoke of God the most in this way I'm going to show you, which is the reason religious leaders set out to kill him. What I'm going to show you is what everything else in our Christian life effortlessly flows from purpose, peace, confidence, courage, victory. The highest revelation of the new you in Christ is that you are a child of God. Now, I know today that might sound anticlimactic. Maybe you're thinking, that's the big revelation, Kyle. I already knew that. After all, how many of us start our prayers with Father, most of us, right? I hear some people say Daddy, maybe even Papa. Whatever the case, any of those titles for God reflect a parent-child relationship. 
And that concept of God being our personal father and we being his personal children, you being his personal child, that's very modern in terms of history. Did you know that nowhere in the Old Testament is there a person who addresses God as their personal father? A German New Testament scholar in the mid-1900s did a bunch of research on Jewish literature inside and outside of the Old Testament and found no place where God is addressed by anyone as their father, at least not in a personal way. Think about that. Let's say humans have been around for about 6,000 years, according to the biblical timeline. For 4,000 years of that, two-thirds of human history, nobody knew God as Father. What a privilege we have of living on the other side of the cross. We get to call God Father. Now, in fairness, there are some verses in the Old Testament that refer to God as Father, and maybe some of you were thinking about them. Isaiah 63, 16 is one of them. Surely you are still our Father. Even if Abraham and Jacob would disown us, Lord, you would still be our Father. If you go to Jeremiah 31, 9, God says, For I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my oldest child. So yes, the word father is used in reference to God in the Old Testament, but not with the understanding of a parent-child relationship that we have today. The only thought of God as the father was the father of the nation of Israel, not a personal father. They thought of him as the father of the nation. The way to think about this in our terms, at least for those of us who live in America, is how we refer to the founding fathers. You might call Thomas Jefferson a founding father. And by that, you'd mean that he was one of the founders of America. But you'd never think of him as your personal father, not someone you could speak to directly nor intimately, not someone personally responsible for your well-being. Well, that's how Israel knew God. As I said, that's how anybody knew God for most of human history so far. They knew him as creator. They knew him as redeemer of a nation. But any kind of personal interaction they would have had with God was more in terms of a master-slave relationship, whereby they would do things to try to please or appease their master, but that's about as personal as it got. But Jesus changed all that radically. You know, sometimes I like to call Jesus a wrecking ball to the religious system, because so much of what he did and taught just obliterated their religious system, and everything they thought they knew about God. And this was one of them. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus refers to God with the title of Father more than any other title. I've seen various counts, ranging from 70 sometimes to 100 sometimes. I didn't take the time to count them up myself. The difference in the amounts probably has to do with the Bible translation that's used. Still, Jesus uses Father a lot of times. I'd say he obviously came with an agenda. 
And the gospel writers continued Jesus' agenda, especially the Apostle John. And I'm going to get to what he did with this a little bit later. But the agenda is that Jesus personalized God. That's what he did. That's what he came to do. First, he personalized God to himself. He called God my Father. Again, you have to realize that nobody spoke like that. we got to kind of get back into the mindset of that time. Nobody spoke like that. When Jewish leaders heard Jesus calling God my Father, what they heard is him saying, I am God's Son, therefore I have authority. And that was blasphemous to them. Look at how serious they took this. In John 5, the backdrop here is that some Jewish leaders observe Jesus heal someone on the Sabbath. Big no-no. How dare you heal somebody on the Lord's Day? If I might rant for just a minute, this is the kind of stupid stuff that legalism does. It prefers upholding an interpretation of the letter of the law over helping somebody. Just goofiness. But you know, when you live as you are a slave, as if you are a slave to a master, I guess that's kind of how you act. When you live afraid of being punished for breaking a rule, then you desperately make sure you don't break the rule, even if somebody has to suffer because of it. Reminds me of the other night when I was at a hotel restaurant. I had gone to support a friend who was playing and singing there. And it was a fancy restaurant, and the parking was like $45 just for the two hours that I would have been there. But I had been promised that by eating something at the restaurant, I would get the parking fee waived. So I ordered an appetizer. And the bill for the food came to be like $20 or something. It was an expensive appetizer. But after I had paid, the server sprung the news to me that to get the free parking, the total spent had to be $25. That's legalism. He could have not said anything, not made an issue of it, and I would have left a happy customer. But instead, he was so afraid of breaking a rule that even though I was off by a little bit, he made me suffer because of it. A little grace would have gone a long way. And I'm pretty sure his manager would have agreed. Actually, I know his manager would have agreed because I ended up getting that parking for free. Anyway, back to Jesus' story. The religious leaders see Jesus heal on the Sabbath. And they're so concerned with upholding the rules that they chastise him for helping someone. And Jesus just rubbed it in their face all the more. I mean, he just put salt on the wound all the more. He says, in verse 17, My Father is always working, and so am I. And then in the next, verse 18, look at their reaction. They didn't like that. It says, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal to God. Jesus personalizing God as my Father 
was scandalous. And he died because of it. But he also died to make God your father. Look at how he spoke to the disciples in teaching them to pray in Matthew 6. Verse 6, he says, but when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Your Father. I mean, it was revolutionary enough that Jesus called God my Father. Now he's saying your Father. That God is your personal Father. And then he tells them that they could talk to him privately. But then he goes on in verse 8. He says, For your Father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. Jesus is saying that's how much God loves you. That's how much he knows you. That's how much of a good Father he is to know just what you need before you even ask it. Then he leads them in the Lord's Prayer, which begins with, Our Father. There are plenty of other instances in the Gospels where Jesus refers to God as the personal father of his followers. But the Gospel of John turns this into the message of all messages. Each one of the four Gospels was written by different people and emphasized different things. They all had their purpose. Matthew, for example, wanted to show how Jesus fulfilled the Jewish prophecies. That's why his gospel begins with a detailed genealogy of Jesus. Luke, a physician, was concerned with sharing eyewitness testimonies. So he begins by revealing how much research he did in preparing his gospel. John takes a different approach. He emphasizes the miracles of Jesus, but also our personal relationship with God. And that's why John builds up to this concept of our personal relationship with God. Now, maybe you won't appreciate this like I do, but this is just one of the most fascinating things to me. If you read John's Gospel, you'll only see Jesus speak of God as the Father and my Father. That is, until you get to his resurrection in John 20. And when the stone is rolled away and Jesus steps out of the tomb, he eventually encounters Mary Magdalene, who's crying. And she finally recognizes Jesus. And that's when he gives her this instruction. In verse 17, he says, Don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do you see this? All this time in John's Gospel, John had been building up to the personal relationship with God through Jesus. And then at his resurrection, John reveals Jesus as saying that because of his finished work, God is now your Father. This was the message of all messages. Like I said, it's why Jesus came, it's why Jesus died, and it's the first message he gave after his resurrection. And on top of it all, he gives the message to a woman, which is a whole separate message right there. 
because of how different John's gospel is from all the other gospels. Scholars call it the most theologically rich gospel. John put a lot of thought into how he arranged the narrative of Jesus' life. None of it was made up, of course. But he told the story in a way that emphasized just what Jesus came to do. It says, I've been saying, Jesus came to personalize God, to make us children of God. And that's crucial to note. To make us children of God. I think that's why John kept Jesus' announcement until after his resurrection. And had Mary tell just his disciples, those who followed him, that God is their father. After all, when he was speaking to the religious leaders, you know, when they were upset at him for calling God my father, he didn't call God your father to the religious leaders. And that's because we are only made children of God by belief in Jesus. His followers believed in him. God was their father. The religious leaders didn't, so God was just my father. Are you with me? You see, not everybody is a child of God. Now, everybody is made in God's image. Talked about that in last week's message. That means everyone has value to God. Everyone is loved by God. Everyone is pursued by God. But becoming a part of God's family so that he can call you his child and you can call him your father, that requires a DNA change. And that's just what you got when you said yes to Jesus. It's what made you the new you. It's the theme of this series, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. I often teach that process from the old into new is called regeneration. The first six letters of that word spell re-gene. R-E-G-E-N-E. When you said yes to Jesus, you were given new genes holy genes, designer genes. This means that the sin nature that identified you as sinner was removed from you, and you were now given the nature of Christ. In that moment, your sins were forever forgiven. You were put at peace with God and declared right before Him. This is the moment when your relationship with God changed from master-slave to a father-child relationship. As Paul says in Galatians 3.26, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God is your personal father and you are his personal child. And I'm not talking about an abusive <laughs> father-child relationship. I'm not talking about a human one where you struggle to know you're standing with your own father. I'm talking about the purest form of father-child relationship, the model form, whereby you know that there's nothing you can do to make your father unlove you. You know there's nothing you can do to be taken out of the family. You know that your father wants the best for you and will move heaven and earth to make the best happen for you. That's the kind of father-child relationship you have as a new person in Christ. Paul goes on to tell the Galatians in 4.6, And because we are his children, 
God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Paul goes on, he says, Now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. And since you are His child, God has made you His heir. There is so much in that verse to unpack about who you are and what you have as the new you. So we're going to break this down here for a few minutes. And we'll start with that phrase, Abba, Father. This is the same phrase that Jesus used just before he was about to be arrested. He knew it was coming. And he prayed, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Well, Abba is an Aramaic word for father, and it's interestingly not translated into Greek like the other word for father is. So here, when Paul or Jesus are saying Abba, Father, they aren't saying Father, Father. If they wanted to say that, they would have said that. But they said Abba, Father, and that's because Abba is a term of endearment. There's a lot of debate over whether this is equivalent to daddy. I won't enter that debate, but it certainly is equivalent to something special. Only someone with such an intimate relationship with their father would add any kind of term of endearment to his name. But that's what we get to do as a new person in Christ, because that's how good our father is. So good, in fact, that when we know it, we are compelled, as, as Paul said, prompted to say it, Abba, Father. I mean, right now, I just encourage you to say it. There's something about saying, Abba, Father. It's almost like an entire prayer in and of itself. For me, saying it is almost like taking a deep breath and exhaling in relief, Abba, Father. To me, it says, God, you are good. You love me. You'll take care of me. You want the best for me. God, I trust you. Abba, Father. says, I don't have to do anything to please you. I am already pleasing to you. That's why Paul went on to say, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. You see, before Jesus, everybody was trying to please or appease a God. The Jewish people were sacrificing and following law in hopes that they might stay good with God. The Gentiles, like the Galatians he was writing to, they were doing all kinds of things to try to appease one of many gods. So whether Jew or Greek, they were all slaves to doing and striving and trying to get better and be better. So Paul basically says, no believer, that's not you anymore. God doesn't want anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you because now you are his child. I just want to pause right there for a minute. Just to think a little bit more about this concept of being a child, because it's mentioned a lot in Scripture. Jesus said that to enter heaven, you have to become like a child. And I don't think Jesus 
meant like immature or uneducated. I don't think that's what's meant by childlike. I think he meant in how we approach God. You see, we often try to come to God as adults, looking good enough, achieved enough, pleasing enough, spiritual enough. Yet as many of us know, this adulting doesn't work to get us any closer to God because the work has already been done by Jesus. That's why God says, be childlike, innocent and simple in faith. Think about this. A child runs to hug their parents, sweaty from an afternoon of play, with stains on their clothes, smelling like outside. Yet they don't care how they look or smell. They just know they need the comfort of their parent who loves them and is there for them. When Paul says we are no longer slaves, but we are children of God, I think that's the difference. Slaves work to please a master that may punish them if they aren't just right. But you, as a child of God, you who get to call God Abba Father, get to run to God in the simplicity of just who you are, knowing that whatever mess you've been through, whatever you've rolled around in, however you smell, you won't be rejected because you are already accepted and made right in Christ. And that's how Paul then finishes this in Galatians 4, 7. He says, and since you are his child, God has made you his heir. You know what an heir is? It's someone who inherits the position of his predecessor just by being themselves. For example, a prince who is heir to a throne is the one who will get the position of the throne for no reason other than they are in the family. Well, as God's child, you are his heir which means you already have the position of one who is right and loved and complete without having to work for it. That's the position you get gifted to you with your faith in Christ. So as a child of God, what God wants most for you is for you to enjoy the relationship. Rest in the peace that comes from knowing that you have a Father who knows you so well that He knows your needs and loves you so well that He'll provide those needs. When it comes to the maturity of our faith, to judging someone's growth or whatever, to God, it's not how many things you're involved in. It's not about your level of service. It's not about the sacrifice of your giving. Now, Christians will do all of those things. Christians do serve, and they do give even sacrificially. We do a lot of good things. As James said, faith without works is dead. But he's not talking about working to prove your faith or to please God or earn anything from Him. What James is saying is that when you know how much you are loved and how much you mean to God, then part of the change in you is that there's this natural desire to want to love people and gather together and help people in all kinds of things. Not all of us have the same things, but there is a change. 
people wanting to gather together in a church building. That is a sign. People loving their spouses they're supposed to be loved. That is a sign. There are all kinds of things that, as one in Christ, really happen without thinking about it. So get this. As a child of God, service to fellow Christians, and anything you do for God ends up happening without even trying. It's not a burden. They just happen out of the overflow of God's love. And that's the point. The new you is freed from a life of striving and slaving. You are freed to simply enjoy all that comes from relationship with God. Truly, the strings are off, the pressure is off, and the shame is off. Friend, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, I came that you may have and enjoy your life. Yes, there will be difficulties and challenges. Christians aren't immune to those. But the life Jesus died to give us is one where we can be at peace in the midst of chaos, positive in the midst of pain, and hopeful when everything looks hopeless. And I want to help you live that life. The stress-less, the frustration-less, the fear-less life. To help you beyond this message, we are offering my audio series, Stress Relievers. This is nearly two hours of teaching where I alert you to the sneaky ways that stress enters your life, and then I guide you through applying biblical principles to live with your soul on vacation. The series includes four messages, living in your grace zone, busy bodies, the easy way to trust God, and the place of God's delight. This series helps you rise above the pressure of today and experience the abundant life God desires for you. Get the series instantly on four MP3s or four CDs at kylewinkler.org slash stress relievers. Thank you for tuning in to the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and He is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast, wherever you get your social media. See you next time.